Welcome to Pity Party, a podcast to end BSL. I'm your host, Sydney, and I'm so excited to dive into our episode today as we move one step closer to removing breed discriminatory legislation from Ontario, and really, anywhere that it still exists. Today, I want to talk to you all about responsible ownership and what that means. It will be part one of two because there's just so much to dive into here. Now, responsible ownership may not look the same to every person, and more importantly, it may not look the same for every dog. So many people have become new dog owners in this past year, as we've seen countless uplifting stories about how this pandemic has been so amazing for dogs. We've seen record high adoptions and awesome stories about shelters being completely emptied out. We're also now seeing a wave of returns that many rescue and animal welfare groups predicted, where people are now dumping their newly adopted dogs as they prepare to return to work, or they realize that having a puppy is a lot of work and not all cuddles and kisses all the time. And unfortunately, there have been some real horror stories as well, like the plane full of dead Frenchie puppies that arrived in Canada from the Ukraine last July. You heard that right. People were so desperate for puppies last year, and quote-unquote breeders were so desperate to meet demand that they improperly and carelessly flew hundreds of dogs across the world. And as a result, dozens of those dogs did not survive the flight. So in entering into this conversation about responsible ownership, I want to start by suggesting to you lovely listeners that responsible ownership actually starts before you even bring your new dog home. It starts with taking the time to research where you get your dog from. Now, I'm not about to sit here and breed or bash. There are plenty of responsible and amazing breeders out there, and there are some very valid reasons for wanting a dog of a particular breed. What I will say is, If you're looking at getting a dog from a breeder, as important as it is to research the breed of dog you're looking to get, it's just as important to research the breeder you get that dog from. I am an avid believer that every single dog deserves a loving home. And admittedly, I do find it hard to reconcile sometimes my feeling that no dog deserves to be raised in a puppy mill or an irresponsible breeding situation. But as long as people continue to pay for and save dogs from those types of places, They will continue to exist. So do your research, have patience, and ask a lot of questions. Some common advice when dealing with a breeder is to request to meet the mother and father of the puppies and to see where they're being raised. Ask about the parent's health history. Find out if the puppy will receive any vaccines or basic training or other services before purchase. If a breeder wants to meet you in a parking lot and doesn't ask anything about you or the home that their puppy is going to, they likely only care about getting paid, and you're at risk of getting a poorly bred, probably sick puppy mill puppy. And this logic applies to rescues as well. Do your research. Not all rescues are created or operated equal. I recommend seeking out third-party posted reviews for any rescue. If you can't find information beyond what's on their own website, Ask around in local groups to find first-hand accounts of people's experience working with that rescue. Some of the biggest things I personally would be looking for would be a rescue with a strong foster program where fosters are given training support to help get the dogs ready for adoption. 
a rescue that thoroughly vets its dogs to make sure any health issues are addressed. I don't know of any reputable rescue that does not, at the very least, vaccinate and spay and neuter every single dog in their care. And if you're not sure what kind of dog is a good fit for your lifestyle, maybe look into rescues where you can foster a dog before adopting. It's well known within the rescue community that dogs go through several decompression phases when starting their new lives. And you want to look for an organization that's as invested as you are in finding the right home for every single dog. Rescuing a dog who's been in foster care for more than a few weeks can be a great way to get to know exactly the kind of dog that they are and who will be the best match for your lifestyle. You can even cut out the middleman if you want by being that foster home for yourself. As I mentioned in a previous episode, Gordo was our seventh foster dog, and every single dog we had before him was unique and amazing in their own ways. But they weren't the right dogs for us. Fostering also helped prepare us to be better dog parents because we learned more and more about dog behavior and training with each dog and each new issue that arose. Not to mention, it's a great way to get an understanding of the financial an overall life-changing commitment that adopting a dog really is, and a great way to give back to dogs in need. So, you've done the thing, and now you have your dream dog. Whether they're a purebred puppy, a mutt, a rescue, or anything in between, you are embarking on a journey that will change both of your lives for the better. I spoke with trainer and the owner of Harry Tales Training, Christina Rapson, about socialization, which she zeroes in on as one of the most important things to do when setting a new dog up for success. So when you have a puppy under the age of four months, um, your biggest goal is going to be proper socialization. Proper socialization for a puppy is really what's going to make or break whether or not your dog is going to end up having any type of behavioral issues in the future. Um, most behavioral issues are caused by fear or insecurity about things that perhaps they've never experienced. So essentially, if you're able to get out there and socialize your dog, which of course, during a pandemic can be very difficult because we're at a stay-at-home order, you know, you, you can have a dog who's extremely anxious, nervous, and fearful. Um, one of my dogs was, uh, at the base of her personality, was a fearful kind of an anxious, aloof dog. Um, but because of my circumstance, I wasn't even a dog trainer at the time. Um, I was a student in, in doing my bachelor's degree and, you know, living in my mother's basement. But because of that, you know, I had to take the subway and I had to bring her to as many places as I could with me, which is all part of the socialization process. So during the time between when, she, when I got her and when she was four months old, she had met, you know, hundreds of different people and children including men and kids, which are the two biggest ones when it comes to people, because children are loud, they kind of run around and move quickly, and it can be scary for a dog who's never experienced that. And that's why you see a lot of dogs who are reactive to kids. It's usually just a matter of the fact that they have never experienced being around kids before, and kids are scary. Um, and then men, they have a deep voice, right? So with a dog... In, in a dog world, you know, dogs, they growl at each other to communicate when they're not happy about stuff. So sometimes a dog might think, oh, well, this really tall man, he's, he has got a deep voice and it's kind of scary. And I'm not really sure what to think about that man. So those are the two things when it comes to human beings. But then you have to think about so many other aspects. Um, I think during this pandemic, a lot of people have forgotten about socializing their puppies to indoor spaces. So I've had a bunch of dogs 
before we were in full lockdown and I was allowed to train within my training space, um, my training space is in a small low rise apartment building and you just need to take a few stairs to get up because I'm on the first floor. I've had a few dogs that are about, you know, eight months old, which means they were literally acquired at the very beginning of the pandemic. And they were, they were literally never brought to an indoor space that was not their own home. And so when they arrived at the training space, they had a complete meltdown because they, they didn't understand what was going on and why were we going into this space? And it really, like, they almost had a panic attack and it's happened on numerous occasions. So that's just the lack of exposure because when a puppy is under four months old, they're so resilient to that fear that they initially experience. And as long as you end that experience on a positive note, meaning that you're patient and you, for example, um, I have a client who lived near a skate park and it was very loud and echoey and they had to pass the skate park every single time they took their dog for a walk and the dog was terrified of the skate park. So all they had to do was sit by the skate park for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, maybe once, twice a day. And within a week, the dog was like, oh, this is not a big deal at all. So just taking that time to let the dog have those experiences and finish those experiences where they're, they realize it's not a big deal. If you leave the experience and they've had a you know, full-blown panic attack and, and then you've, you've given up because you, you're, you're scared that they're going to make the whole situation worse, that's actually where you're going to leave that scenario and they're going to have a negative experience from that. So next time that you ex you go to that place or meet that person or whatever, unfortunately, they're going to be scared again because that's how it ended the last time. How would you say the early training focus is different when you're dealing with a adult rescue dog who is new to you but, you know, has a usually unknown history? Yeah, so adult rescues um it's the socialization process is similar, but you have to be really, really patient because now what would have taken them at, you know, under four months old, maybe like a couple visits to one place to be okay with it. It's going to take maybe 50 visits to a place to be okay with it. It just takes so much longer for them to get over that fear um, or anxiety about that space, especially if they've had a negative experience with it in the past. So lots of positive reinforcement and encouragement when it comes to dogs who are fearful of different spaces. But one thing that uh, people are unfortunately, because we're human, and it's very maternal and paternal of us to, to do this, but one of the biggest mistakes that people make with their rescues is that when the rescue gets scared, they start to coddle and baby talk them. So, you know, oh, it's okay. Like, oh, you know, and they pet them and they get down and they, they try to like, you know, like you would with a child, but unfortunately, dog psychology is not the same. And if you start giving attention to, especially if you start giving affection to a dog who is in a scared or fearful state of mind, you're actually going to encourage that state of mind. And so what you need to do is show them that everything is okay. Yes, you can motivate. So motivate is different than coddle and baby talk. Motivation is like, what's this, you know, come over here, what's this? You can use your clap your hands or use food if they're interested. Some dogs are too scared for the food and like encourage them to get towards that object or that person. But in terms of rescues, if you don't know their history, you never ever force a rescue dog to greet a person or another dog. So um, you need to see if they're ready for that. If you force a rescue dog into being pet, for example, by a person, 
especially if they're on a leash, there is a very large chance that if they've had negative negative experiences with people, that they may react poorly and end up maybe even biting that person. Because most bites for, for bites from a dog to a person, it's due to fear or they were trapped. So when it comes to that, like you really have to be patient and make sure that you are watching to see if your dog is ready for that. And, you know, if your dog kind of backs up and really appears like they're not ready, well, that's okay. You can praise any type of curiosity. So like if their nose starts moving and they kind of are are curious and interested, but maybe don't want to be touched. uh, You really have to advocate for your dog though in those scenarios, because a lot of people don't understand just because a dog is moving towards them, that doesn't mean they're ready to be touched. So a lot of the time with rescues at first, especially if we don't know their past, I suggest that when people come up to you and ask, well, can I pet your dog? Your response should be, well, let's see if my dog is ready for that and and I'll let you know. And then you can see if the dog is interested in going towards that person. But don't let that person come towards your dog space because that could end poorly. Yeah, it's it's also, uh, you know, you mentioned advocating for your dog. And I think that that's so important for people to remember and not be shy about because yeah. even if your dog is ready to be pet, I mean, I know I fostered quite a few rescue dogs um, and a lot of them are very uncomfortable about the hand sort of coming in over their head. Um, and so, you know, this dog might be totally okay with being pet, but you need to get down on her level and, you know, yeah. put your hand underneath her nose so that she can smell you and kind of invite your touch. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people feel kind of shy about maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it really goes such a long way in making your dog feel comfortable. A hundred percent. And And I think that people really... Um, sometimes they're, they're people pleasers. So they're afraid of saying no to other people. And what I could tell to those people is if you have a new rescue, some, some people's biggest regret is not saying no, because you can enter into some pretty not great situations. If you, if you're not ready to advocate for your rescue, who's not ready to be touched. So in those scenarios, you know, it's spreading awareness and education to non-dog owners or even dog owners who don't understand. You know, if they kind of reach out to try to pet your dog without even asking, like typically what I would suggest is you would actually move your body in front of your dog. So you'd step in front of your dog and just be like, oh, sorry, um, my dog's in training or this is a rescue. I don't really know if this dog is friendly with people yet. That kind of stuff uh, really also makes your dog feel like, you have their back because you're not allowing a stranger to come into their space and just touch them without, you know, the dog even feeling like they're ready for it. So when you do that, while it is obviously going to be slightly uncomfortable for the human because you're having to say no to a person that you don't know, um, you can always do it in a nice way. I've had clients who have told me they have had some unfortunate experiences with people who have gotten upset with them for saying no, that you, you can't pet my dog. But in those scenarios, like those people are, those people are just being really selfish. I mean, dogs are not here for everybody's entertainment and enjoyment, and people need to respect their space just like they respect other people's space. They're living beings. Christina makes some excellent points about how socialization isn't as simple as just introducing your dog to other dogs and people. And I think her explanation of how socialization should include new spaces as well made total sense. When you bring a dog into your life, you become their whole world. And how big that world is, is really up to you, 
Training your dog to be the best they can be is a never-ending process and learning experience. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to your dog training woes, and the techniques that work for one dog may not work for you. There are so many different training philosophies, from positive reinforcement, clicker training, alpha dog training, balance training. There's almost endless options out there. Christina described her training style as relationship-based, and she explained to me that what that looks like depends completely on the dog and handler that she's working with. If you're struggling with managing your dog's behavior, I highly recommend consulting an expert like Christina for advice, or at the very least, make sure you do your own research. Sometimes being responsible means admitting when you're in over your head. Dog body language and behavior is not always as obvious as you might think. And I know I've had experiences myself with Gord where what I thought was happening was actually not at all the case. One of our more recent revelations that came a year into our journey with him was that Gordo is actually much more of a people person than a dog person. Since changing the focus of our park times from go make friends and play with the other dogs to let's play fetch and explore with mom and dad, we've seen him have so many more positive park experiences. His recall has improved and his interactions with dogs are so much better now that they're truly on his terms. And in a way where he always knows, he can just ignore the other dogs and hang with me if he wants to. One of the biggest common threads I've found in embarking on this project has been hearing from targeted breed owners about their frustration with other dog owners not being responsible for their dogs. In particular, one of the most common grievances I hear is about people having their dogs off leash in places where they shouldn't be. We're gonna dig a lot deeper into how being a responsible owner is different for people with bully breeds in part two, but I wanted to highlight this fact here as well. Christina's point about advocating for your dog is so important because really, sometimes that's the only thing you can control. It can be so frustrating when you put in the work only to have it unravel because of someone else's carelessness. Overall, I think a lot about being a responsible dog owner comes down to communication and respect. You know that old saying, do unto others only as you would have them do unto you? Well, I know we all think our dogs are the most sweet and special buddy who can do no wrong, but I think we could also agree that our communities would be much stronger if more people put the work into making sure their dogs are under control and being safe. Make sure you tune back in next week for part two of this episode, where we'll chat even more about what makes a responsible and safe dog owner. Thanks for coming to the pity party. You can find show notes for this episode and lots of great links on our website, pityparty.blog. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at pityparty_pod. And thank you to my guest, Christina Rapson, for being featured in this episode and the Ontario Coalition Against BSL for their support. All of the music in this episode is by Crowander, and the show is written, edited, and produced by me, Sydney Shapansky. If you want to join the party or have a story or question surrounding BSL, send an email or voice note to listeners at pityparty.blog. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Is this the most fun thing we've ever done?